Hey guys, before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that doors are now open for our signature accelerator program. We are doing a major deal for this promo period where you get Critical Care Academy's CCRN review course absolutely for free as a bonus if you join us before May 4th. Our signature program is special because it's a one-time investment for lifetime access. There are no recurring fees. We want you to start this process early. So if you're in nursing school or if you are just starting the school search process, this is absolutely perfect for you. We walk you through picking schools, writing your resume, making sure you have all those boosters to make you stand out. We've got over 20 hours of video lessons along with an entire downloads vault of swipe files and templates. And of course, over 50% of the program is interview prep. We have five on-demand mock interviews. And then of course, a huge part of this is every month we have office hours where you can bring your questions and get answers. We have essay office hours with our expert developmental editor, Dr. Diane Katie. We have group mock interview practice labs, ad hoc guest speakers like SRNAs and other faculty. It really is a comprehensive program. And once you are in, you are in for life. You can head to the crnaclub.com to check it out. And again, the CCRN review course as a bonus, that ends on May 4th. So if you are on the fence, shoot me a DM at the CRNA club. I am hanging out there. But otherwise, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to the CRNA club podcast. Today, we have Dr. Rhea Temmermond. She is a CRNA and a basic science researcher in neuropharmacology in the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology at Drexel University. She has a, a, quite an amazing story to tell, but a little bit more about her. She is a full-time researcher. She studies basic and translational sciences. She focuses on the field of drug discovery for neuropathic pain and uses a variety of molecular techniques and animal models to help develop new non-opioid medications and bring them to phase one trials. Specifically, she studies glutamate transporters on astrocytes and their role in pain modulation. And she was awarded the Art Zwirling Grant from the AANA Foundation. She also teaches for CRNA programs, including Augusta University, Drexel University, Thomas Jefferson, and also for the LEAP program at Case Western. So that was a mouthful, but welcome. Welcome, Dr. Temmerman. Thank you so much. Also forgot to mention, you are editing the first comprehensive science textbook for nurse anesthesiologists. Is that right? Yeah, there actually is a textbook already available for nurse anesthesiologists, the science textbook, but it's not written by nurse anesthesiologists. And I think that's a big difference here is when you have scientists who are writing a book for clinicians versus clinicians that are writing a book for clinicians. So I think that's the important distinction. But yeah, we have a wonderful team of over 50 faculty members from around the country that are contributing to a physics, chemistry, and molecular biology book for our CRNA trainees. Well, fun project. That's going to be amazing. Is that going to be in like in a couple of years, two or three, two or three years we might see Yeah, that? yeah. So we're in the writing phase right now. And it, writing a textbook is a, a huge project time-wise. The publishers are usually not in the same kind of time crunch that we are. So a project like that usually takes two or three years. I would expect that book to come out in around 2025. Um, okay. So maybe when all of our listeners are getting into CRNA school and starting CRNA school, they'll be using your yeah, textbook. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to bring you on the podcast today for multiple reasons. First of all, you have just been such a huge like inspiration to me and I think a bunch of other 
CRNAs and SRNAs on social media and also in your field, but I initially started following you and just became completely engrossed in everything that you had to say. You are incredibly smart and just have so much knowledge and you're so willing to share that knowledge with future SRNAs, future CRNAs, people who are just interested in the anesthesia profession. So I thought it would be so wonderful to invite you on the podcast and speak to our listeners who primarily are in the applying phase of CRNA Mm -hmm. school. They're trying to figure out what are some things that they can do to be competitive? What does it actually look like to be a CRNA? What Mm -hmm. do CRNAs do besides work in the operating room? And as I'm sure you know, there's such a huge disconnect between ICU nurses and the CRNA profession because they just don't interact all that much. We maybe see each Mm -hmm. other for five minutes when we give reports. So it's been really great to see how much knowledge and information you've been able to spread. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. But first, before we dive in a little deeper to some real tangible tips that we can give our listeners, that was a big mouthful for the intro, but why don't we start off talking about how did you get to where you are today as a CRNA and as a full-time researcher and a faculty member and an editor, because that is extremely unique. Like you guys as listeners, this is not normal to come across a CRNA who's doing, <laughs> who's wearing so many hats. So yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about like, yeah, what kind of brought you to do it, like doing all these things? Yeah, I knew that I wanted to be a CRNA since I was probably 14 or 15 years old. I was looking for a career that would be challenging, but would also offer me flexibility in my life. And being a CRNA seemed to fit a lot of the things that I was looking for. So I began shadowing when I was pretty young. I was still in high school when I began shadowing CRNAs. And I knew that this was probably what I wanted to do. So I went a pretty traditional, more traditional route to CRNA school, which was going to a BSN nursing program immediately. And during the program that I went to was University of Pittsburgh, which as an undergrad really pushes you to consider research as part of your undergrad training. It wasn't required, but it was strongly encouraged. And so when I was a sophomore undergraduate nursing student, I began working as a research assistant right away. And that led to becoming a project manager of a large multi-center trial, to becoming a co-investigator, to then getting a Bachelor of Philosophy in Nursing Research. So this was all in undergrad. That was just undergrad. And I had a lot of really excellent mentors at, at University of Pittsburgh. I had a lot of nurse practitioners and CRNAs who were PhD trained that taught me a lot about research methods, methodology, data analysis, data collection, So that was all really, really good training. So from an early age, I'd already been taught a lot about how to kind of go above and beyond, you know, your bedside duties. And, and that stuck with me throughout my career. So I was able to luckily get into an ICU right away. I went to neuro ICU. I like neuro. And so that's, I thrived there. And I took on little projects here and there until I applied to anesthesia school. So once I was in anesthesia school, because this was always kind of the track, I I probably spent about three years in the ICU. So I'm finally in anesthesia school and I want to continue with my research training, but also also continue with my clinical training. 
But my program director at the time actually wasn't very supportive of me doing research. She definitely wouldn't allow me to do it and also wouldn't allow me to go to conferences. So clearly you could tell already this is not a good fit for me, but I didn't know that at the time. And I will also preface that with that's not how most programs are. Most programs are very supportive of you going to conferences and very supportive of you doing extracurricular academic activities. So actually I had to do research in secret in anesthesia school. I, I had to <laughs> I had to go to clinical all day. And then when I got out of clinical, I had to sneak over to a research lab without anybody seeing me and do research in the afternoons on my own. But I felt like that was necessary. You know, if this is what I wanted to do was to be an academic, these were the things I had to do, even if it meant me not telling my program director. So I actually worked with a physician anesthesiologist who was incredible. And he had a artificial pancreas lab. And even though that wasn't my true area of interest, it was that he was willing to take on a nurse anesthesia student because we had a common love for research and he taught me everything that he knew. So that was really great and he was a great mentor. So take my first job out of anesthesia school. I ended up going to a pretty big level one trauma center in South Jersey, amazing place called Cooper Hospital and did every single case you could think of from neonates doing you know PDA clippings in, in the NICU to doing hearts, to doing cranies, everything that, every single case you can imagine, they were having CRNAs do. And we also did trauma independently in the trauma bay. So that was a really awesome experience. And once I got settled with that, I was like, okay, I've always been involved in research projects, but now I'm ready to lead. I'm ready to be a PI. I wanna to prove to myself that I could take an idea to all the way through publication. And that was my main goal as a full-time CRNA is, can I do this? And, and so we designed a randomized trial with carotid endarterectomy patients. We wanted to look at post-operative cognitive dysfunction and randomize patients to different types of anesthetics and see if that made a difference in their uh, neurocognitive outcomes at different time points. So I did that and, and, and got that work published, but I realized that during that process, I had a lot of knowledge gaps. Like I, I needed a lot of help. I couldn't even analyze my own data. I had to like send my data off to a biostatistician to do it for me. I, I couldn't really design a clinical trial on my own. I, I needed a ton of help. And so I felt like at this point, it was time for me to get more training in that and, and go for my PhD. And, you know, with the, with the other podcasts, I talked about how I wasn't really accepted in the nursing community to get my PhD and how they didn't feel like anesthesia research was nursing research. And, and so that pursued me to pursue, like go for a more hard science PhD. So I ended up going for a PhD in pharmacology instead. And which was a great fit for me because I can get the scientific training that I needed. But also I think that's really set me apart and made me unique as a CRNA is because there are not very many CRNAs that have hard, hard science PhDs. So now that's brought me to the point where I'm at now where I still practice clinically somewhat, but most of the time I'm in a research lab. So I'm working four to five days a week in a research lab. 
I love it. It's more preclinical science. I'm working with more molecular, doing more molecular work, working with animals and doing some drug discovery work, mostly in non-opioid medications. I'm teaching as an adjunct professor at Drexel University and doing a lot of more academic projects like writing textbooks and manuscripts and whatnot. So it's fun. I like the flexibility of it. And I like that if I have a lot of choices now. Yeah, I could even choose not to even work in healthcare anymore and have a job in government and industry. I could work in law if I wanted to. You don't need a law degree if you have a PhD in hard sciences. There's some different types of law that you can do too. So lots of options. Yeah, that's how kind of my long-winded answer of how I got to where I'm at now. One thing that you mentioned that I wanted to bring up is sort of how the things that have happened to you along your journey, particularly that sort of rejection that you faced when you spoke on the Anesthesia Deconstructed podcast. And you guys, if you haven't listened to that yet, go ahead and take a listen to it. But you spoke about sort of a obstacle or hurdle that you faced with that sort of rejection from the mm-hmm. nursing field. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and how you turned that rejection into how that shaped your current path? Mm-hmm. At that point, when I was working as a CRNA and knew I needed more training, I knew that the, the there's a couple options you could do as far as doctor degree. You can get a, a DNP, a, a doctor in nursing practice. You get a DNAP, the doctor in nurse anesthesia practice, or you can get a PhD in nursing, in hard sciences, or a variety, really a variety of other fields in economics, leadership, other health-related leadership roles, whatever. So... I knew that if research was my goal, the PhD had to be the training that I that I needed to get. A DNP doesn't really give you that rigorous training that you need to be a researcher. A lot of the projects that they do are probably more quality and improvement project based or using literature and applying that to a clinical project. But what I really needed was to analyze data, to design trials, that sort of thing. So now my first open house that I went to was at a PhD nursing open house. And the administrators of the PhD program were asking me you know, they were going around the table and asking us all to describe the type of research that we were doing. And so when I started telling them about the research that I was doing, I was really excited about it. And we were coming up with some really cool results and data. The, literally, the first response they gave me was that that's not nursing. And that was just amazing to me because I felt like what I what we do as nurse anesthetists is nursing care. And it's also medical care too. It's it's this unique place that we're in as nurse anesthetists where the act of performing anesthesia is medicine, but also care, nursing care for patients. And so we get a lot of, our field gets all, a lot of, I would say, misunderstanding from other nursing fields in some ways because they don't sometimes understand what we do as nurse anesthetists and don't always consider us nurses. That's exactly why I wanted you to bring that up is because I think it's really hard for applicants to sort of grasp this concept that when you are entering the CRNA profession, you are not a 
abandoning that nursing mindset because you're not. You are still a nurse at heart. We still are very hands-on with our patients in bedside care. But also there's this alternative side to it where you have to sort of step up and also step back and realize that you are it. CRNAs can practice independently. We can make the decisions. We don't need to get an order. So I think sometimes it's hard for people, especially who have been nurses for a long time, to sort of step out of that like tasky, like I don't want to make it sound demeaning, but like there's a different mindset when you are in CRNA school and when you graduate. CRNA school makes you become an independent leader. Correct. And And that's what the mindset you need to get into. Correct. Correct. And also going into it. And when you're thinking about why you're applying to CRNA school and explaining that in your personal essay, really showcasing that, yeah, it's not just you're going to ask somebody else or check with the physician or, you know, do a consult. It's you thinking through the, the thought process and making those decisions. So I, that was a really interesting story for me to hear as a listener. And I think that is something that even as a CRNA today, exactly what you said, we still kind of face that sort of view that we are sort of like a hybrid. We're not completely in the nursing world, even though as CRNAs, we consider ourselves nurses. We don't always get viewed that way just because it's such a unique position. So yeah, that was a really, really interesting story. So right now you're studying novel non-opioid medications. And why is that such a, why is that such a passionate topic for you? And why is that so important to study? Ultimately, it comes down to my true passion, which is studying the opioid epidemic. And the role that we have as CRNAs that contribute, possibly contribute to the negative effects of it, and how we can uh, contribute to interventions to help, you know, mitigate it. Some CRNAs don't always think about their impact outside of the hospital and the community. But in fact, we have a large impact on the care that that people get outside the hospital. You know, if you send patients home on prescription opioids to treat their pain and don't really think about any other multimodal therapies, whether it's pharmacotherapies or non-pharmacotherapies, and send people off that, like, you're contributing to the problem, right? So that's part of my contribution to it is how do we come up with better non-opioid medications? You know, a lot of the non-opioid medications don't work well. They have side effects. There's a big miseducation out there with how to treat pain properly, acute and chronic pain, but also there's a big misconception out there with people with substance use disorder and some healthcare workers still believe that it's a complete choice and that it's not in the same mental disease category as other psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. You know, how many times do we say to a patient they're just drug seeking, but now that you have already labeled somebody with that, not only is their pain not being treated adequately, but now their substance use disorder is not treating, being treated adequately as well. So you have two separate medical conditions that you've just totally ignored. So there's a big education component. I think eventually I'd love to lead a team of CRNA researchers to start creating like true, meaningful interventions for people in the community 
and we have we can have such an impact. Think about all the training that we have in pain management. If we could treat people's pain adequately, then maybe they're less likely to relapse back to their substance use disorder. So it's kind of like a two-part thing that I'm trying to do. So I'm still an early, let's say an early phase investigator and trying to figure out what that, you know, where I, where I kind of fit in, in that niche of the world. Mm -hmm. Cause in the operating room, we deal a lot with managing hemodynamics. That's kind of mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that I think people think of, right? Is treating blood pressures and keeping everything stable, but also mm -hmm. pain management management is a big thing students now are just getting trained so well with using the ultrasound and doing peripheral nerve blocks. Right. Also mm -hmm. just with the rise of it just being more acceptable to employ multimodal techniques, mm -hmm. even doing opioid sparing techniques. And you could do really big surgeries without using any opioids. Right. So, and mm -hmm. that's just studying. We're just, it's more common now than it was five years ago. It's more acceptable for you to give handoff mm -hmm. in the OR and be like, Oh, non-opioid um, anesthetic. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to be like, what, what are you doing? And now it's like, okay, mm -hmm. cool. We'll use ketamine, Tordal, IV Tylenol. We've got other things yeah. we could use. So I think but people are resistant to change if you don't give them data and mm -hmm. you can't produce data if you don't have researchers. And so that's why I'm trying to, you know, inspire a lot more CRNAs to consider even doing small projects or transitioning their DNP projects to research projects that they can continue after school to keep producing that quality data that actually creates change in people and their practices. You would be a really good person for everybody out there who's been accepted, who are, who's brainstorming ideas for their DMP project. I know you have a reel on this. That's really good, but you would be the perfect person to help people come up with some ideas because I think that is one of the hardest things I remember being in school. I mean, yeah. like, I know nothing about anesthesia at the beginning of your program. They're like, okay, you're going to pick your topic that you're going to work on for the next two, three years. And you're like, I literally don't know anything. And so you're yeah, just kind yeah. of picking a topic that you're like, maybe this sounds good. So yeah, I it's think definitely that... something that we're working on nationally as faculty to try to come up with strategies that schools can work on together to create meaningful work rather than school ABC. Everybody's doing the same project, but not really collaborating on it. And then because you only have maybe three semesters to work on a project, you're not really getting any, you know, meaningful work done. Whereas if right. you have three or four schools collaborating on the same thing, then, hey, school A can take this aspect of it. School B can take this aspect of it. And then now you have a publishable project, right? Right. Um, and it's actually it's, producing yeah. meaningful change. And it's not just, exactly. I mean, I know we all just try to make it to graduation and check the boxes, right? We're just like, <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to turn in this paper. Right. But I get that. I, yeah. And in retrospect, you know, how cool would it be to be like, yeah, we, the, the paper that I spent, you know, three years working on in my doctorate program has now impacted thousands of CRNAs across the country. Absolutely. And now we've mm -hmm. changed practice and changed patient outcomes and safety and just all sorts of things. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. Definitely. As people are choosing their topics, we should, we'll come to you and brainstorm some ideas. So speaking of CRNA school faculty member, I know a lot of our listeners are just dying to hear from that side <laughs> of that particular hat that you wear. So I want to talk about particularly, what are some key characteristics that you are looking for in applicants? What are you trying to gauge as you're sifting through their essay and their resume and even in the interview? Mm-hmm. 
I would I could say that some of the characteristics that we look for can be broken up into three broad categories. The so one would be job related characteristics. The second being people related characteristics and the third being personal related characteristics. So that's think about those three broad categories. So let's go back to the job related characteristics. One of the first things that I look for is general professionalism. I think that we are trying to, as an organization, produce extremely professional individuals. And some of the things that we might look for that speak to this are any involvement in duties beyond the bedside. So any service related activities in your community or in your professional organization or any kind of advocacy that you're passionate about. Maybe it's not even nursing related, but it's just something in your life that you're passionate about that you advocate for and give your time to. So some kind of service. So I see that as like a sign of professionalism, but also just like kind of how you, you carry yourself as well, right? Because you're going to represent a profession. The second job related thing that we look for, and, and perhaps the most essential part of it is your, what, what we always kind of call critical thinking, but it's beyond that. Right. So what do we mean? What do we say when we say critical thinking? So it's like this ability to grasp difficult concepts quickly rather than being able to memorize a list of facts. Right. So you're going to be learning pretty tough scientific principles, physics principles and how to apply that to human physiology. And can you grasp those concepts? The second being your ability to organize data into a framework and quickly draw from this knowledge during critical times or critical incidences. So when you learn knowledge, are you able to conceptualize that in your mind and draw, and draw from that when you need to? Do you have kind of an organized way to go through data and then be able to apply that to a critical situations? So those are probably the two main like job-related characteristics would be the people-related characteristics, right? So look for do you have excellent communication skills and that comes through in your writing whether it's your academic writing like your essay or even your interpersonal writing so even i like judge like email communication right can you can you communicate effectively through email can you communicate effectively by speaking and do you have good timing too are you a person that takes two weeks to get back to somebody are you a person that gets back within a reasonable time frame right away. So there's a lot of aspects of communication that are important. And communication is a big, a big factor when working in the operating room, because you always work in a team. And, and I don't mean nurse, physician, anesthesiologist type team, I mean, you're working with a surgeon, a circulator, and technicians during critical incidences, and can you communicate effectively during those those times. The other part of that is your conflict management skills, your kind of like interpersonal skills. Are you kind of hot tempered and quick to anger? Or are you pretty good at having difficult conversations when, you know, maybe you, you need to have that conversation with a coworker and when the time comes. Mm -hmm. So those are those people related skills. And so the last thing is those personal, personal related characteristics, looking for your ability to handle and cope with stress. And uh, because of course, you're going to go through a stressful program. So do you have kind of those skills already to be able to grit your way through school and 
and not get too frazzled? Are you flexible? Do you have good time management skills? And do you have the discipline to dedicate three years of your life to pretty intense graduate study? If you're a person that's maybe going through a lot of really big life changes right now, like you are thinking about getting married and starting you know, starting a family and all these really life, those, I'm not saying that they're impossible to do in CRNA school, and certainly people do it all the time. It's just challenging, you know, because you're dedicating so much of your life to this this three-year time period. And lastly, I'm looking for, you know, kind of like your personality. Like, do you have an even-keeled personality? And are you able to understand and communicate your emotions effectively? So, you know, do we kind of, I think that after a while, you kind of can tell with a conversation with somebody kind of <laughs> what their personality is. Some people are hi are good at hiding, hiding things and it comes out later for sure. And so you don't capture everything in, in a short interview. But I think those are the things in general that we're looking for in in our future anesthesia residents, but also as, as future colleagues, right? That's that person that I described as somebody that I would want to work with for the long term and would want to like represent our profession. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest things that I think as somebody who helps people sort of present to themselves, it's like, yeah, what, what kind of person do you want beside you in mm -hmm. probably the most stressful period of your day, right? When you get yeah. Yeah. failed airway and, or your patient's coding or you've lost way too much blood and you're asking for help, is the person next to you going to get to work and communicate with you and communicate with the surgical mm -hmm. team? Or are they going to flail around and freak out and just not be able to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. So I think absolutely it's, yeah, we want people to enter this profession who are going to not only represent us well, but genuinely because we want to have people who we can work well together with to provide mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. safe, effective care. So it's, it's definitely multifactorial there. So yeah, what would you say, by the time somebody has scored an interview, that initial pre-screening process where you're looking at their transcripts, their essay, and their resume, would you say that when somebody gets that interview, you already know to a point that academically or you know according to their resume they have the potential they have what it takes to succeed and that now that you're in the interview process you're just kind of trying to gauge that fit or would you say that by the time they make it to the interview you could still be like i don't know if you're like if you have what it takes mm. yeah i can only speak to the school that i interview for which is drexel university in philadelphia and certainly other schools are could be totally different I know that for us, we only interview people that on paper have already been accepted, right? They already look good on like everything is pretty, mm -hmm. you know, I would mm -hmm. say 90% there. And as long as they don't do something <laughs> egregious on the interview, they're going to get in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been surprised. There are have been times where I have read somebody's CV and I would say on CV, this would be my number one choice. And they, after the interview, have not gotten in. I've been surprised. There have been people that have amazing grades. And they have background. They might even have a publication. They might have all these really amazing things. But 
when they went through their interview, what's hard to tell is their actual, those critical thinking skills. And so when they're giving, given some kind of clinical scenario and asked to talk through it, completely fumbled, could not give any comprehensive answer at all. And I think what that usually comes from is not spending enough time in the ICU. And so what we tell people like that is spend another year in the ICU, get a little bit more experience and reapply. Because it's it's not that you can't be a CRNA ever, it's just you can't you can't get into our program right now. You just mm -hmm. need a little bit more time, a little bit. And then I think that after a year or two when they reapply, they're much better and, and mm -hmm. much, much more ready. So I think in, even that one scenario that I'm thinking of, I think she only had about a year of experience, of ICU experience. Mm -hmm. So you could, it showed totally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there have been people that have done their EQ questions that have said really weird off the wall stuff. And, I, and we've given them interview and they've probably been on the bottom of my list, right? because of just the weirdness of their writing and end up being my favorite person to the to interview because they just had a great personality and maybe it, they just couldn't communicate effectively through writing. So I've definitely been surprised for sure, but most people are in the middle. Like they, they interview, they on paper are good and they interview fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point that you brought up because a lot of people are like, okay, one year in the ICU, that's it. But I mean, it, and it's definitely possible to get into school within a year, but we're, we're talking high acuity experience, you know, I'm, yeah. you have to be, even really... our program, even our program now just started like requiring the CCRN. Yeah. I think it's, it's really going to be coming down to how, what are the types of patients you're taking care of? What's the acuity? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. kind of scenarios are you running into? Because yeah, there's people like, you know, what other experience do you have besides ICU? If you were working in a step-down unit or maybe, yeah, a different unit for a couple of years first, and then you transition to the ICU, you're going to still have a lot of other critical experiences under your belt so that everything in the ICU mm -hmm. just makes more sense. But if you're a mm -hmm. new grad starting in the ICU and it's maybe not as high of an acuity, yeah, just like you said, it's mm -hmm. going to it's going to show because just over time you it get is exposed gonna show. to Yeah, we can tell right away. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> can't you know, be everybody us. out there. <laughs> yeah, I know. As much as we want to try, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you know, it's to, the truth is, it's only going to benefit that person, that applicant, to get more experience because when you get mm -hmm. into CRNA school, everything's just going to make more, much more sense. You're going to excel in clinicals better. So it's not just mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm any silly old reason it's it's really to make your success in crna school just a lot better so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i agree we yeah, can't get sure. too hard on ourselves if if we need more than a year because it's most applicants have more than a year so mm -hmm. one thing you brought up was kind of the importance of of the essay and being mm -hmm. able to communicate so now with the dnp is there, if any, a bigger focus on putting more effort into your essay when you're submitting your application? Oh, for sure. Yeah. More important than ever now, because all of the CRNA schools have transitioned to doctorate level work, the essay becomes pretty important in your application process. Before, when the programs were master's degrees and we weren't doing or requiring as much writing during the coursework, the essay was more formality, you know, to get into graduate school. But now think of the essay is this one to two page 
very polished writing example that should have been edited multiple times by multiple people. And so this document really represents you. And if you don't communicate the message that you want to communicate effectively through your writing, then it's pretty difficult for us to expect you to then write a thesis for a doctorate project and to really do any kind of writing for any of your doctoral classes, your DMP type classes, where you're going to have to be writing essays all the time. So I would say take the time to, and I you say all the time in your podcasts and lectures and everything that people don't start early enough. And I completely agree. If you're thinking about applying to CRNA school, you should be thinking about giving yourself at least three to six months to write the essay, at least. Because it just takes time to find mentors that are going to help you edit that piece of work and to go through many, many renditions of, of what you're trying to say and do. And most people can't do it alone, especially for nurses that don't write all the time. You know, you don't expect that you're going to be able to do this by yourself. You're going to need help. Mm -hmm. I agree. A lot of people will send us their essay about a month before it's before the application deadline. Mm. And it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult because typically that first edit that we do gets completely torn apart for just major points. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you take out this half of the essay, start again with this, just this content. The first edit is just for like a major content of like, hey, what are the three mm -hmm. points you're going to include? What do you actually want to say in 500 words? Because that's not a lot of real estate. So what is the mm -hmm. most important mm -hmm. things you need to say? And then there's yeah. a lot of wordsmithing flowing, connecting the paragraphs. So I yes, three to six months is ideal. And people typically need at least three edits. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's it's really worth the investment particular of, of time as well. It's worth worth spending that amount of time on because that will set you apart as you are having applicants who are just more and more competitive, taking classes, going to, mm -hmm. you know, AANA meetings, just going above and beyond a lot more. So what is it going to come down to? Yeah, the interview mm -hmm. and then and then the essay as well. So mm -hmm. I totally agree. So one thing about the essay that I think is stumping a lot of people and one thing that we really try to talk about in our accelerator program and at the CRNA Club is issues and topics and trends and just things facing the profession. And it's really hard for ICU nurses to grasp this concept and understand what are some key things that as CRNAs we are always trying to advocate for and fight for or work towards. Mm -hmm. What is a, a good way that you would suggest to applicants to really inform themselves about the issues facing the profession and how they might, as a CRNA, one day be able to contribute to solving some of these issues? Yeah, for sure. Well, this is going to take work. And it's not easy for you to just scour the internet and find all the answers that you need. You're actually going to have to make some effort to do this. And perhaps the easiest way to do this is to attend a state or national conference going to get a lot of information there. So there's about four national conferences throughout the year that the AMA holds. The mid-year assembly is in the spring. It's probably a more political-based conference. The annual congress is the big conference. That's usually around August. And we have the leadership summit in the fall and then the ADCE or the assembly of didactic and clinical educators. That's usually in February. So those are the four like major national conferences that you can go to and we strongly recommend that RNs attend and speak to people and speak to directors, find the directors of the schools that you want to go to, have a conversation with them and, 
introduce yourself, tell them about yourself and where you're from. We love that. We definitely never shun nurses away and, and encourage nurses to attend. So, and that's national. And then you could go on your state website, whatever state you live in and find their local conferences. They'll, they'll post. So for example, I'm in New Jersey, Pennsylvania area. So we have PANA and NJANA, but every state has their own ANA. So they have multiple conferences throughout the year. And they're quite cheap for RNs. I think the one we just had, they're like $25 for RNs. It's not that much money. So that's one way is to attend conferences. Shadow, shadow, shadow as much as you can. And during your shadowing process, you should talk to the CRNA as much as possible about their ideas and views of some of the issues that are facing our profession. I know that in the operating room, we try not to talk about that stuff a lot, especially around physician anesthesiologists, because we don't want to create problems while we're trying to deliver care. But of course, when it's just you and the CRNA, you're on break, don't be shy, you know, ask those questions and, and talk about those. The next piece of advice that I would give is to seek some kind of mentorship. There, that I would say that's probably a little bit harder to do is to find the right mentor or a good mentor. There are definitely a lot of CRNA based companies out there that offer this and they're all really, really excellent, especially your accelerator program here at the CRNA club is just an excellent mentorship program to go through and just learn so much about the profession and speak to CRNAs. So I think mentorship is important. And then other easy ways are you know, looking through our ANA journal it has a lot of different articles that you can read up on to see the types of projects that we're doing right now. So yeah, I would say those those four ways are some ways that you can get an idea, but I think the absolute best way is to attend a conference, for sure. Absolutely, I agree. There's a virtual option this year for the mid-year assembly, so that can be virtual, and then I have to check on the annual Congress if there's a virtual it is, option yeah. as well. Yeah, because okay. I because of my I'm speaking on that Sunday of the, the conference and they told me that it would be a hybrid session. So you could definitely listen to it virtually if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That's going to give so much information for your essay writing. It's, it's just going to cover the gamut of everything. So I highly mm -hmm. recommend people mm -hmm. to do that. Yes. And I, I think there's sort of a, a fear for applicants to go to these meetings because there, we all think that there's going to be this like spotlight effect where you walk into a room and everybody's heads are going to turn <laughs> and they're going to be like, who is this non CRNA? But really yeah. at the end of the day, no, A, people all. don't notice and B, mm -hmm. people are going to be really excited that you're interested to come and talk to them. So I want mm -hmm. to really encourage people to just go to this kind of low low risk, high reward situation, mm -hmm, put mm -hmm. yourself out there. And it's really going to come down to how many touch points can you get with these people to help them remember yeah. you and to help them be like, Oh yeah, I remember that girl. She came and talked to me. We were talking about X, Y, and Z. So yeah. th that's all. And really don't, don't, if you decide to do that too, don't be passive in the process, really do some research ahead of time of the types of schools that you would like to apply to and find those people and talk to those people and think of some talking points to bring up as well. Whether it's something about the school, something about the person, just something that makes your conversation memorable. You know? Permission to stalk, go see what research articles they've written and mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. see what connections you can form. So, okay, thank you, Dr. Temmerman. This has been incredibly helpful for people. I know this episode is gonna be really popular for our listeners. So if people want to learn more about you and your role as a researcher and like maybe follow you on social media, where could we find mm -hmm. you? 
Yeah, anybody can email me at any time at crnascientist at gmail.com. But I'm also on most of the social media platforms. I'm probably the most active on Instagram. So my handle is crna underscore scientist. But I'm also trying to get, you know, the YouTube up and running. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. And I try to be, like, pretty responsive when I'm not bogged out with didactic, with didactic lecturing. You know, try to be responsive to people because I want to get the word out there about the CRNA profession, but also the things that you could do away from the bedside within research and science and whatnot. So getting more people inspired to do that. Yeah. Wonderful. I'll link all those social handles below. And yeah, we could do a whole separate episode about the non-traditional roles of CRNAs and what room there is for Mm -hmm. us to really excel outside of the operating room. So Mm -hmm. anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and we will have to have you on again sometime. Thank you so much.